I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about what we're thankful for in cases heading to conference. And we recently sat down with Judge David Strauss. So as we enter the holiday season, we want to take a minute to thank, first and foremost, our listeners. Without you, there wouldn't be a show, so thanks for joining us each week. And we love hearing from you, so keep the feedback coming. I'm also thankful for the return of Tiffany Bates. The last year was uh, a little bit harder doing the podcast on my own and having a rotating cast of characters to come co-host with me. So I'm, I'm so glad that, that Tiffany is back. Well, I'm also glad to be back. Uh, although not uh, in person with me in the studio today. Um, sorry to hear you're not feeling well. And finally, I'm thankful for the new two-minute rule. Although, uh, as Justice Kagan suggested in a speech, and I think, Tiffany, you're going to get into this more later, Justice Kagan's speech, I wish it was only a one-minute rule because two minutes really seems like an eternity. But I'm glad that the justices are letting advocates talk a little bit and sort of lay out their vision of their case before the justices pounce with questions. Um, well, that's great. And I'm very thankful to be back on the podcast and thankful for my new job where I get to work with some of the best lawyers around on a bunch of fun SCOTUS cases. I'm also thankful for my clerkship, which we plan to talk about um, in a future episode. I've never learned so much in one year. And once again, I'm very thankful to Harry Reid for blowing up the filibuster in 2013. Uh, because the last few years wouldn't have been so great had he not done that. Here, here. All right, let's move on to what's been happening at the court. Well, the justices are not hearing arguments this week, but they do have a conference on Friday. So we're briefly going to talk about a couple of cases. So the first case, just a disclaimer, Tiffany's firm is involved in it, so she will not be commenting. So Chief Justice John Roberts granted a stay in the case involving the House Committee on Oversight and Reform subpoena for President Trump's tax records. The D.C. Circuit had ruled earlier in November in favor of allowing the committee to subpoena these documents. And as of this recording, the House has not yet filed its response, which is due Thursday at 3 p.m. So once that response is in, the justices will likely discuss whether to take up the case at their conference on Friday. There's a second case out of the Second Circuit involving a grand jury subpoena for 10 years of the president's financial records. And Trump's lawyers filed a cert petition in that case. And the response from the Manhattan District Attorney isn't due until mid-December. So keeping an eye on both of those cases. Also headed conference this week is Adnan Syed's case. This stems from the hit podcast Serial, which raised questions about Syed's conviction for the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee. So Syed argued in a cert petition that the lower court used the wrong standard to evaluate his claim that his trial lawyer provided ineffective assistance of counsel in violation of the Sixth Amendment. So the issue is whether the trial lawyer's deficient performance prejudiced Syed's defense. And there's a circuit split on whether a court evaluating prejudicial effect must take the state's case as it was presented to the jury or whether a court may hypothesize that the jury may have disbelieved the state's case. So the majority of federal circuits and state Supreme Courts say a court should compare the case actually presented by the state with the case the defendant would have presented if his counsel had been effective. So Syed's lawyers, uh, new ones, not the trial lawyer who he says was 
ineffective, argue at the Supreme Court that the trial counsel failed to call a witness who saw Syed during the time when the state says the murder occurred. And the, the lawyer also failed to follow up on other people this witness identified who could further provide an alibi for Syed at the time of the murder. So Syed says that the Maryland Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in Maryland, um, hypothesized a different case, one where the jury rejected the state's theory of the time of Lee's death in favor of some unpresented and unknown alternative timeline. And because the uncalled witness's testimony did not undermine this hypothetical case, the failure to present her testimony did not prejudice Syed's defense. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that case. And there are no arguments this week or next week. It's a bit of a slow period for SCOTUS news, but um, there are two things that I want to quickly mention. So last term, the court heard Gundy versus the United States about whether SORNA, the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, whether its delegation of power to make regulations, the attorney general violated the non-delegation doctrine. And so in a four to one to three decision, the court held that it was not an unconstitutional delegation of legislative authority. But Gundy has asked the court to rehear the case since Justice Kavanaugh didn't participate. Um, I think he was confirmed at that point, but I don't think he had taken a seat yet. Justice Alito, who ultimately concurred with the liberal bloc in the judgment in the case, in his concurrence, he said he was willing to reconsider the non-delegation precedents if a majority of the court was willing to do that, too. So the chief, uh, Thomas and Gorsuch, all would have held that SORNA violated the non-delegation doctrine. Alito seemed to want to wait, but willing to do so in the future. So John Elwood pointed out, out over on his Realist Watch, it's highly unusual that a petition for rehearing um, would be relisted uh, because they're usually pretty quickly denied. But that case has now been relisted six times. So we don't really know what's going on. Maybe another dissent, maybe Kavanaugh is now interested in participating. If I had to guess, I would say maybe someone is writing a current decision to deny rehearing, but a statement that the court is now willing to reconsider non-delegation in another case and kind of indicating, um, as they sometimes do, that uh, parties should bring another case. It's yeah. interesting, though, because I'm not sure why they'd need to write again that, you know, we're interested in taking up uh, a case like this in the future because we already have four members of the court already saying that they were willing to do that. So I'm not sure what, you know, what it adds at this point, unless Justice Kavanaugh really wanted to get on record and say he's interested in one of these cases as well. Yeah, it's true. The only thing I can think of is that since the case came out the way it did, maybe some of the justices that might be discouraging to parties who would lay off bringing cases for a while, and maybe they want um, someone to bring a case sooner. Mm, yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. So next, Justice Kagan gave a speech at George Mason University this week, um, and it was great. I watched some of it online. We can tweet a link. Um, one of the professors uh, sat down with her, and it was a Q&A, and the first thing he asked was about, you know, he said students have massive anxiety about their careers, and, you know, what should they do? And without missing a beat, Justice Kagan responded, chill out. <laughs> um, and I think that was really funny and great. And she talked about her disappointments in life and how those led to her job today. And she said the best piece of advice she has um, for law students is, you know, uh, they, she says they tend to plan too much. So keep your eyes open to opportunities that might pop up. And you need to know how to grab those opportunities when they do arise. Uh, she also talked about the confirmation process. She said um, it's gotten to a bad place 
and it makes the court seem political in a way I don't believe the court is political. And just that somehow people have to get back to where they were and that everybody on the court feels this way. She also uh, gave us some insight in what she learned from Justice Marshall. And my favorite part was that when her and her clerks would tell Justice Marshall, oh, we had to do something this way or that way. And uh, he would make them walk over to his commission on the wall and repeat <laughs> whose name was on that commission. <laughs> That's and I thought great. that was really funny. <laughs> and uh, in, in addition to Justice Marshall, she said Justice Brandeis was her judicial role model um, and that she sits in his um, his seat at the Supreme Court. And she calls it the, the longevity chair because everyone who's held that seat uh, has served for 30 or more years. And then one final thing she mentioned was um, hunting with her and Justice Scalia. I knew they did that, but I didn't know they did it so frequently. So they went two or three times every year. They like to go to Wyoming and Mississippi in particular, and they hunted deer, ducks, quail, and pheasants. Well, it sounds like a great, great insights from, from Justice Kagan. Um, well, moving on, we recently had the opportunity to sit down with Judge David Strauss. David Strauss is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. So thanks so much for joining us, Judge Strauss. Thank you for having me. So before we get into your career, we'd like to talk about your family a little bit. Uh, You've written and spoken publicly about your grandparents, who were both Holocaust survivors. And I want to ask you about them. But first, I want to read a a short excerpt from a Wall Street Journal article that you wrote in uh, 2017. Uh, Here's what you wrote. It's never been easy to come to grips with my family history. My aunt recently completed a family tree going back centuries. Many of its branches end abruptly in the late 1930s and early 1940s. These names, no more than entries on a piece of paper to me, represent my heritage, my family, much of it lost in the hollow corridors of concentration camps. I can only imagine how my life would have been different had my grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins never experienced the merciless brutality of the Holocaust. And then later you go on to write... Uh, Only after years of researching their stories and reflecting on their lives do I understand the message my grandparents had tried to impart, one of hope and gratitude, not bitterness or pity. So how did this family history shape who you are? As I've grown older, uh, it's become become more a part of me, uh, even than when I was younger. When I was younger, my grandparents shielded me, I think, Mm -hmm. from a lot of the stories, the brutality uh, that they experienced, particularly my grandfather. Um, he wanted me to have a normal childhood and he didn't want me to be burdened um, with the things that he had to experience when he was just a teenager. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was a little more open uh, about what happened to her. I remember when I was hitting my teenage years, one of the stories she told me was that when she was when she was doing something wrong, a guard pulled out a belt with metal spikes on it and whipped her with it. And I remember just being my mouth was open and I didn't even know how to respond to my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Um, It's as I've learned bits and pieces of the story throughout my life, it's I've tried to to sort of think about what they sacrificed so that I could be here and that I could have a better life, that their kids, their grandkids, my kids uh, could be here and have a better life. And there's just certain messages from my grandparents that I rem- that I that just keep echoing in my head all the time as I as I live my life. One is is to never forget what happened mm-hmm. uh, in the Holocaust to never let it happen again. My grandfather also used to say, please serve your fellow man. 
That's how he used to put it. He has a, a famous or a speech that he gave in Kansas City to a bunch of new immigrants to uh, to the United States. And he talked about when you get here, one of the most important things you can do is to serve other people. Mm-hmm. And um, given what I've done throughout my life, I think I've, without even really recognizing it, I've lived that sort of that sort of message, which is, you know, he told me to serve people and my entire life has been about public service. And so I hope, very much hope that both of my grandparents who are now deceased uh, would be proud of what I what I've accomplished. But at the same time, I can't even come close to imagining uh, what they went through and the horrors they faced and how how much I um, admire them for coming out the other side and being great, great grandparents to me, to my brother, um, great parents to my dad. I, I just think it's what they've done is incredible. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think it's really profound. Um, turning to um, our favorite public servant, you clerk for Justice Thomas. Can you tell us a little bit about your time in his chambers? It was uh, really one of the highlights of my career. Um, I've often said publicly that um, clerking is the best job that I've ever had. And believe it or not, that includes my present job. Um, <laughs> I loved I loved the law. I loved digging into the law. And my time with Justice Thomas and my time clerking with the two circuit court judges that I clerked for were some of the best experiences about just just engaging with the law, talking with my co-clerks about it, talking with my judges about it. And with Justice Thomas, um, you know, it was it was an amazing experience. One of the things I often have said about him is he is one of the most original thinkers mm-hmm. that I've ever mm-hmm. met. Um, there were times during my clerkship when I would come in and I'd say, Justice, I think I've got a good handle on this. Let's talk about this case. And uh, he'd come in with some angle that I hadn't thought of um, and, and engage me. Uh, on the topic. And he was always, he always knew the record. He always, you know, he always had a handle on the law. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. One of my favorite experiences actually during the clerkship was um, we had a big term. We had Lawrence versus Texas. We had the the Grutter and Gratz cases, mm-hmm. the Michigan affirmative action cases. And one of my, one of my really fond memories was sitting around the crackling fireplace. He always lit his fireplace when we were having these clerk conferences during the winter and just talking about some of these important cases. Um, and of course, um, those of those of you who know him personally, he's a really gregarious guy. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was amazing. I had a three-year-old kid at the time I was clerking at the court, um, <laughs> and he loved when my kid would sort of come in and steal candy from his candy jar and things <laughs> like that. Never, ever, you know, raised his voice or got upset with them. It's just all around, he could not have been nicer to my family. And it was just a, I grew so much during that year. It was a wonderful experience. That's great. So following your clerkship, you spent a year in private practice and then the next several years teaching at the University of Minnesota Law School. So how did you end up in Minnesota? So I went through the meat market, so-called meat market. And um, I, at the time, I was a, a fellow at the University of Alabama. They have this Hugo Black Fellowship for former, or at least they did, for former Supreme Court clerks. And so I started teaching and kind of fell in love with it. And when I went on the teaching market, you kind of are at the mercy of the law schools <laughs> themselves, which is who's gonna, who has an opening in your field, which my field was federal courts or my primary field was federal courts. And it so happened that, that the University of Minnesota had an opening. And my wife was really, really wanted to go back to the Midwest. I'm originally from Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I'm from Wichita. She's from Kansas City. And we both wanted to live within driving distance of home. And Minnesota was simply the best teaching package in the Midwest, and it's a wonderful law school. I love the years that I had there. But really, I had no 
sort of prior experience <laughs> with Minnesota. It was a leap of faith, and it turned out to be a great leap of faith. Yeah, I'd say living in Minnesota turned out pretty well for you. And then in 2010, Governor Tim Pawlenty appointed you to the Minnesota Supreme Court, and then you were elected to a six-year term in 2012. And then I guess some would say you were demoted to the uh, federal appeals court um, <laughs> after having been a justice. Now you're only a judge. Um, so do you miss the state court or campaigning? I do miss the state court very much. Every job – I've been very fortunate in my life. Every job that I've had, I've loved. Um, I loved being a professor and interacting with students. I loved being a justice of the Supreme Court, although I've gone through a lot of changes in what people call me. I've gone from professor – to justice, to judge. And so I've had to adjust to that at each level. But the time on the Supreme Court was great. My colleagues were wonderful. Um, the real honor for me or the real, uh, you know, serving the people of Minnesota was an honor. But even beyond that, the great thing about that court was I got to engage with common law issues, things that are just sort of basic things that you learn in law school. And while being a federal judge is wonderful and I love every every day of it, I don't get to engage as often with sort of some of these basic principles that we wrestled with on the, on the state Supreme Court. And the other thing about the state Supreme Court is we took all of the hardest cases, the issues of first impression. Um, it was a discretionary jurisdiction docket. And so I learned a lot about a, a ton of different areas of law, everything from workers' compensation to sort of, you know, ordinary crimes like theft and robbery um, to, you know, State tax law. I mean, the the this the variety of things I got on that docket um, was amazing, and I learned more during those six years than perhaps any other part of my life. That's great. So what I'm getting from this is that you really love diversity jurisdiction cases. I <laughs> get I, on your court now. I don't want to get too excited <laughs> because I love all cases, um, and I don't want to just get diversity jurisdiction <laughs> cases. Although I will say it's really interesting because, of course, Minnesota is in. The Eighth Circuit. And so oftentimes I get assigned Eighth Circuit diversity cases coming out of Minnesota thinking that I have some special expertise <laughs> and that I'm going, to, I'm going to get it right. And it's not always the case. Even in six and a half, seven years, I didn't hear everything. And so there, so I, I, I don't want to say that my, my colleagues have a, um, a false sense of confidence in me, but they may have a false sense of confidence in me. <laughs> so how has the transition been uh, moving to the federal court? It's been, it's been interesting. So one of the things that was, and I, it's been good overall, but one of the things that was very hard, I think, was I had become very senior, believe it or not, on the Minnesota Supreme Court. So I was the second senior most associate justice because of the rapid turnover that mm -hmm. you see on state courts. And so there are a lot of things I was doing that because I was senior, like, for instance, I was the sort of the justice who was in charge of the dis, uh, attorney disciplinary system in Minnesota. And I had a lot of administrative responsibilities um, that the chief justice had assigned me. Mm -hmm. And so 35 to 40 percent of my time on the state Supreme Court towards the end was administrative, which oh, wow. is a surprising amount for a lot of people. Um, it was much less when I first started on the court. And then I've moved now to, to the federal court where I'm the junior guy or the, now I'm the second most junior guy on the court. And so I don't have that seniority. And so it was really it was kind of a, an adjustment to, to 
to go from being a more senior member of the court to having more administrative responsibility to being junior, where now I'd say 95% of the work I do is case related. Mm -hmm. I have very little administrative responsibility. And if the chief judge is listening to this, I'm not asking for more administrative (laughs) responsibility, to be clear. Um, But it's just a different job now. Um, And and I've always loved the the law, the case related work. So it's a good change, um, Mm -hmm. but it's just different than what I was doing before. Mm Are there any special junior justice or junior judge responsibilities like there is at at, uh, SCOTUS? Like, do you have to get everybody coffee at En Banc or something like that? (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you say that because I was told in no uh, uncertain terms that there are no administrative responsibilities for the junior judge when, in fact, I was the junior judge. Mm-hmm. But then we were sitting in either, either in a whole in a court meeting in our en banc conference room or maybe we were, we were uh, conferencing an en banc case. And one of my more senior colleagues said, when are you going to go get coffee or when are you going to go open the door for <laughs> our interviewee or whatever it was or for one of the one of the administrators? And I was like, I didn't know that, that was part of my job. And so they, they either pulled a fast one on me. I've never figured this out. They either pulled a fast one on me and made me feel bad um, or they were just they were just teasing me. A little yeah. bit of hazing. Yeah, a little hazing. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, so you're also on President Trump's not so short short list. Um, how did you find out that you were on the list? So I found out. Well, I found out really at the same time everybody else did. And I was going to say I found out the same way everybody else did, but that's probably not true because what happened was is I was on a conference call and my phone blew up with texts. Um, <laughs> and they were, they were really hard texts to understand at the time because, A, I was distracted because I was on this conference call and I wanted to give my full attention to it. But at the same time, um, there was a, you're on the list, exclamation point. And then what list (laughs) I was thinking, what list? And then I started getting concerned because everybody started like all my friends started talking about this list Uh and I didn't know what they were talking about and they weren't being specific. So I'm I'm going through my head. You know, I'm a state state Supreme Court. Am I on a hit list? I mean, what exactly (laughs) is going on here? And so, you know, it was one of those things where. Finally, I figured out what it was because somebody linked me to like a Google, a Google News article. And I don't remember what the publication was. And I'm like, wow. That list. And then I remember passing those texts on to my mom and my wife. And they're like, wow, that's so exciting and and, and all of that. But I was a little just stunned. I mean, almost yeah. like I couldn't believe it because I had no warning. Nobody had ever called me and asked me anything. It just came totally out of the blue. And then all of a sudden it came out and I was getting all these texts from my friends. <laughs> that's great. So shifting gears a bit, uh, do you have anything in your chambers that represents where you're from, your family, anything about your personality? Sure. So um, I've talked about my grandparents on my father's side. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side um, is a World War II, uh, was a World War II veteran. He just, he actually died in August. And one of the special things that I have is the Navy came in and um, put the an American flag over his, over his coffin before they lowered it into the ground. And I asked my aunt, uh, whether or not I can have that flag and display it in my chamber. So one of the special things that I have, and I, family's really important to me. Religion's important to me. Family's important to me. Um, one of the things I have in my chambers is his flag and a flag box, and then a number of his like medals and 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 patches and things like that. So that means a whole lot to me. Um, I also have pictures of everyone who's, or almost everyone at least, that's had an impact on my life. So I have a picture of myself 
with Judge Brunetti, who I clerked for on the Ninth Circuit. I have a picture um, with Judge Ludig, who I clerked with on the Fourth Circuit. And I have a couple of pictures with Justice Thomas. And the reason is, is I learned how to be a judge from those people. And and I just think that that's a really important thing to remember is how they conducted themselves. Um, I also have um, a printed out copy of when the oath was administered to me at each of the levels. I have a um, uh, printed out copy of the actual copy of the oath that was used to administer the oath because I want to have to look at that oath every day mm-hmm. and know what my job is and what my role is. And so those are just a few things that I have in my chambers. I also have to admit that I have the large, from what I understand, the largest bobblehead collection in the A Circuit. Um, <laughs> oh, it's amazing. So I have all the, I have almost all the green bag bobbleheads, but okay. then I also have bobbleheads of like, Minnesota, like sports figures mm-hmm. um, as well on a separate shelf. So I have a ton of bobbleheads. I'm a lover of bobbleheads. Have you heard we have an Ed Meese bobblehead? I've got to have that one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what we can do about that. <laughs> um, so do you have any traditions with your law clerks or any special special outings or anything like that? So we're still trying to figure all of that out. Um, you know, over time, we had a tradition of going to a particular place in St. Paul, like on their last day of work and having a nice lengthy lunch and um, maybe doing an outing in St. Paul of some sorts. Now that I'm over in Minneapolis, we're not going to head all the way over to St. Paul and sort of sort of do that. But Justice Thomas does that, right? He takes everyone to a Civil War uh, site, or at least he did when I was clerking. I think he still does that on his, on his RV. So I very much want to do that. One thing we do do every year or we try to do every year is go to a baseball game both in in Minneapolis cuz it's a mm-hmm. it's within walking distance of um, the courthouse nice. but then in St. Louis so the courthouse in St. Louis is also within walking distance of Bush Stadium and so we very much try it hasn't happened I've only been there 2 years but it hasn't I think there was one time we couldn't do it in St. Louis but we did do it I think in Minneapolis or vice versa and so we try to go to a baseball game at least once um, you know in each place which I think is fun that's great so when you're not busy faithfully applying the law, what do you like to do for fun? So a big part of my life is my kids. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got one who is a sophomore in college at Michigan. And for me, it was being a, a debate dad. So mm-hmm. he's a big debater <laughs> and he's debating in college. With my little one now, my 12-year-old, um, it's all about um, – it's all about soccer and basketball. He's my athlete. And so a lot of my weekends are taken up by shuttling him around or going to his soccer games and his basketball games and things like that. Um, so that's a big part of being just being a dad. The other thing that I do, and it's very Minnesotan, actually, um, <laughs> even though I'm not originally from Minnesota, I have a mini orchard. Actually, we've got a sort of a big piece of land outside of the Twin Cities in one of the suburbs. And um, big my, by my standards, not big by orchard standards. So we actually have like, I think, eight or nine apple trees, four plum trees, a peach tree, three cherry trees. Wow, and so nice. I've got a little bit of a green thumb. And um, although the harvest was not good because it was too cold last winter, um, it's a very relaxing thing for me to just go out and, and tend to the trees and, and pick the – and the kids love picking – well – my older one doesn't anymore, but my younger one loves picking the apples and helping dad do that. So <laughs> the only problem now is the trees have gotten so big that we've had to figure out ways to give away the apples, which yeah. was not the problem before. <laughs> so we just got so many apples, we don't know what to do with them. Well, you can ship them on down to SCOTUS 101. There you go. Um, so we have one final question for you. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? 
So this is going to seem really off the wall and strange to anyone who's not an academic and has read a particular article that I wrote. Um, <laughs> this sounds like a really great answer is coming. <laughs> yeah. So um, the answer is Pierce Butler, who's a Minnesotan. Okay. And it's not because I love his jurisprudence or anything like that. But when I was an academic, I was invited by the Vanderbilt Law Review to do a paper on an underappreciated Supreme Court justice. And I picked a Minnesotan because I thought it'd be really interesting. And there's very little, there's one book on Pierce Butler, but virtually nothing else. He was one of the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse during um, the the teens, 20s, 30s. Um, But his family gave me access to papers that were restricted at the Minnesota Historical Society, including family papers, like things that had to do with like family businesses and things like that. And I spent many a day photographing things and just reading and trying to understand the person. And I even um, corresponded very briefly with either a grandson or a great-grandson of his after he read my article in the Vanderbilt Law Review and actually sent me a note about it. And so it's because I know so much about him and probably had more access to his family's papers than virtually anyone else in the world that I would love to sit down with him and see if I got it right. Did I really understand you? I wrote a 50 or 55-page paper in the, in the law review, and I'm just – I'm confident based on what I wrote that I got him right, but I wonder if there's hidden parts of <laughs> his personality, his background, or his judicial philosophy that I just don't understand. That sounds like a really great conversation and a really interesting article. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll tweet it out. Sounds good. <laughs> Those who want to read it. Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, food edition in honor of Thanksgiving. And all of these questions come from, of course, my Supreme Court cookbook, which I'm obsessed with, called Table for Nine. I should probably get um, a copy of this book so I so I do better on, on trivia when when you're coming up with the questions. <laughs> no, that, that ruins the whole thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, first question. Okay. Green bean casserole is a traditional Thanksgiving dish. Which justice added a southwestern twist to the traditional recipe and liked to make a white bean casserole? Sandra Day O'Connor? Yeah, exactly. Did the Southwest give it yeah, away? Yeah, she's Arizona. I mean, if you hadn't said that, I'd have no idea who it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was Justice O'Connor, uh, who grew up on a family cattle ranch uh, that straddled Arizona and New Mexico. So white, okay, well, white next- bean? Like are white there, bean casserole. Are there like green beans that are white? No, they're they're a different bean. What kind of beans? I mean, there there are different kinds of white beans. I don't remember. Oh, okay. I'm pi- I'm picturing like, are we talking about cannellini beans or kidney beans? You know, like white beans. That would really change yeah. the. That would really change the dish a lot. Sounds interesting. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. No, it <laughs> did, but it you know it had the same other profile with like the crispy onions on top. The crunchy everything. onions, yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Next question. <laughs> so several times a year, the justices' wives, or now spouses, um, have lunch together at the Supreme Court. Justice Black's wife, Elizabeth, brought a salad shaped like what kind of children's toy to that lunch? She brought a salad shaped like a children's toy. Yes. Um, hmm. Uh, the traditionally female toy. Originally female children's toy? Oh, I don't know. Like a dollhouse? 
Yeah, so it was a, actually a Raggedy Ann doll. Oh. <laughs> and it's actually a little bit disturbing. Um, so okay. I'll take a picture and we'll have to tweet it out. Wait, so what kind of salad was it? Are we talking like a green salad or? Yeah, it was. A green salad like shaped a, like a Raggedy Ann doll. Huh. Yeah, and it had, you know, like tomatoes and carrots. We'll, we'll tweet the picture. I've really got to up my yep. salad game. I, you know, I don't typically make salads that are shaped like anything. I know. I'm sure your children would appreciate it. <laughs> okay, next question. Which justice called himself the world's greatest chicken cutter? The world's greatest chicken cutter. Mm. Can you give me, is it is it like someone from the current court or, or recent court? No. Mm. And I don't know very much about this justice, so I don't think any... I can give any clues. Oh, gosh. So it's probably um, somebody so from, like, you. the... So it's Tom Clark, and he learned how to cut chicken in the Boy Scout. Oh. And he also cooked with his mother, Jenny, who's a great cook and known for her fried chicken. Um, I think Tom Clark was appointed by Truman. I could be mistaken. Hmm. Um, or maybe he appointed him as attorney general. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. Anyway, Tom Clark, the world's greatest chicken cutter. <laughs> Okay, number four. Which justice would put, quote, enormous amounts of anchovy paste under a poached egg for breakfast? Well, I, I know Justice Scalia loved that anchovy pizza from, I, I forget the name of the Italian restaurant. So I'm going to go with Justice Scalia. Not Justice Scalia. It was Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, he has been reported to have quote, attacked food with zest. <laughs> and his housekeeper his housekeeper said about the anchovy paste that it would be enough to take the head off an ordinary person. So I'm sure if they were, you know, together that Justice Scalia would have would have liked to join in on this practice. Anchovies with eggs. That sounds gross, but to each yeah, their own. It does. <laughs> the things you learn in this cookbook. Yeah. Well, um, those are some pretty tough questions, and you got the Sandra Day O'Connor one right away. So um, I think you did a good job. <laughs> well, thank you. Before we wrap up, uh, we're still selling SCOTUS 101 mugs. They would make a great Christmas present. Just going to put that out there. You can get them at shop.heritage.org, and we're offering 30% off and free shipping if you enter the discount code Four bananas, that's all one word, the number four, and bananas at checkout to get your discount. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. And please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.